welcome to the Torvis Podcast. This is episode 25, and tonight we have an inconceivable podcast for you. We're going to cover The Princess Bride. So stay tuned, and let's get into it. In 1987, a wonderful film was released called The Princess Bride. It is beloved by millions around the world. Uh, It is a cult classic. It uh, has stood the uh, test of time. The three of us watched it recently, and uh, it is amazing. So tonight we are going to cover it, and we're going to be talking about uh, some trivia and our views on it and uh, that type of thing. So welcome, Alex, and welcome, Jason. So if you haven't seen it, it's uh, basically there's a kid who's home... uh, home from school he's sick and his grandfather comes in and uh has has a book and reads a book to him and it talks about the princess bride so um i'm gonna kind of talk about some trivia through the next hour and i'm gonna kind of ask first of all uh these two guys what you thought of the film and you've both seen it before correct oh so many times before yes yeah it's the complete package it has everything it totally does doesn't it yeah romance action comedy Yeah. yeah There's some, there's some slightly frightening scenes in there. What what kind of genre would you say it is? Fantasy, fantasy sat- adventure, satire. I mean, it's got comedy, comedy. Yeah. yeah. The um the author of the book, so it was is written by William Goldman, and he wrote the novel The Princess Bride in 1973, and uh, then he penned uh, the screenplay. So. At the time, he said that he had two little daughters, and he says that they were seven and four at the time, and he wanted to write a story uh, that they would enjoy. And then he asked them, you know, what do you want the stories to be about? And so his two daughters, one said, I want there to be a princess in it. And then the other daughter said, I want there to be a bride in it. And that's how the title came to be. And he just called well, it The Princess good. That's Bride. A, that's a good strong tradition in fantasy, right? Like Tolkien, that's written for his kids, right? Uh, Star Wars is, you know, kind of made for made for kids too mm-hmm. i thought it was really really nice how they have it where there's the book in with the they have the grandfather reading the book to the to the sick kid that yeah, was a nice touch but they have it in within the movie and i thought that was really really worked really well and being able to stop and come in and in and out of the in and out of the world through the book and then being able to do that through the movie i thought that was really really good every person i know that has watched the princess bride loves it i mean i haven't heard anyone oh that movie sucks i mean it really is yeah, a, no, a super fun movie to watch i don't know how popular it actually was like at the time I don't but think it's it was. definitely a cult classic now mm-hmm. like and be, again that's the thing about being geeks from the 80s it's like things that you think were popular because your friends like them when you're kind of on the outside of what's popular that Maybe that wasn't popular for regular people, but... Mm-hmm. And it's very funny because both the director of the film, Rob Reiner, and a leaning man, uh, Kerry Ewells, was, uh, they were both super, they were fans of the, the, the film. And apparently, uh, Reiner, it was his favorite book of all time. And the fact that they made, the, they let the guy that wrote the book write the screenplay, that doesn't... That's all, a big one. That's, yeah, that's for huge. Sure. And this is one of my top contentions with things everybody's like oh actors directors all this other stuff they're all important but writing are the people that really make things happen and the writers don't Uh get enough Credit. credit throughout movies because you can have great actors great directors but if you got shitty writing you got a shitty movie so like yes you need good actors and good directors to make it come to life but it's all on that foundation of good writing, and writers are sadly underappreciated. And one of the things that happens in movies, it's called development hell. 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the term before, but in film, when you come up with a movie, it's like, hey, Alex, I'm going to develop this film. And then it goes years and years in the making. And because new producers or the rights will be, uh, they'll expire and then someone else will buy it and they'll just sit on a shelf. It's happened a ton. So The Princess Bride was one of those movies that was in development hell. And it, it went from one actor to another, from one director to another. At one point, um, Robert Redford was attached to the film. And uh, it just it went through a kind of a series of unrelated incidents that just kept it in development hell, right? And it finally got green-lighted uh, years later. And uh, there was even talk at the time that they wanted to have Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, to play Fessick, which was Andre the Giant's role. Mm-hmm. No. I yeah. Wow. Interesting. So, so this is the funny thing. You know when a movie comes out and you go, God, the, the, everyone was in it. It was awesome. But you realize it's kind of like, oh, this person was maybe going to play the leading person. And right. oh, that's yes. crazy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, like think of Star Wars with different characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard yeah. to imagine sometimes when somebody really fills that role yeah. so, so perfectly. Yeah. So um, so eventually it got green lighted and uh, it, it was made so uh, we watched it the other day. It was super, super fun. And we're going to talk about kind of the couple of the characters. So I'm going to kind of go around the table first. And Alex, I'm going to start with you. Yep. Several characters in The Princess Bride. Who was your favorite? Well, my favorite's obviously Wesley, for sure. Um, <laughs> I grew up watching the movie. I think the first time I saw it, I was five or six. Mm-hmm. So I definitely saw it from a much different point that I see it now. It was more about the action, the adventure, and, uh, you know, very much on the sort of from the point of view of Wesley and his experience, as opposed to all of the crazy things that were going on. You know, I didn't really tune into a lot about sort of the undertones of what the movie was actually about. Uh And it was more just that adventure fantasy, uh, you know, the the superficial first top layer for me was what I kind of grew up with. And that was what I was really attracted to. And, um, yeah, so for sure, I think Wesley, uh, you know, and his whole Dread Pirate Roberts um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> story was really cool as well, right? Because you're introduced and the character shows up and you're not sure if he's a bad guy or a good guy or why he's following them or what's happening right. and why he's being a jerk, what's happening, right? And of course, I didn't, I wasn't able to put the pieces together. Like, I'm sure if I saw that movie for the first time now, I would be like, oh, yeah, that's that guy, like right off the bat. Of course. But I didn't. So the his whole character had a much more, um, you know, there was that the shock and the surprise, you know, it's very similar to Star Wars and Darth Vader, right? Like I did not see that coming because I was a kid, right? I could, uh-huh. you know, barely think two minutes ahead, <laughs> let alone figure out plot lines, right? So, right. Uh, a really, really uh, cool character, and uh, yeah, I just thought he uh, the the hero not presenting himself as the hero initially yeah, and the way he was overcoming uh, each of the sort of uh, champions that you meet who kidnapped uh, the princess along the way, mm-hmm. right? How he, how he had to, uh, you know, uh, outskill the, uh, the, uh, the fencer and then he had to outstrength the giant and yeah. then he had to outsmart smart the, the, uh, the Cecilian. Inconceivable guy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, uh, just a really cool setup, and uh, I thought, you know, and it was another kind of how he, there's, you know, no lose scenarios or whatever, right? Like, he has it all kind of worked out from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, I'm going to give some relationship advice. I've never done this on the podcast before. <laughs> We've done 25 episodes, and here it comes. If you want to endear yourself to your significant other, uh, your wife or your girlfriend, uh, this is what you do. You just send them, like, a meme or a gif of Wesley 
saying as you wish as you wish yeah 100 <laughs> yeah and then yeah. you're and then you're good right so yeah. uh such a it's just so good so how about you jason who do, who do you like i like the simplicity of being prepared to die okay that you have a character that has a very simple straightforward motivation Inigo montoya okay yeah, yeah. and he's got his, his line he just repeats it just bangs at home again and again it's very simple it's like okay and he's got his vengeance as his thing yeah he's there killed my father yeah got a sword prepared to die prepared to die yeah and he's gonna see that through the thing and uh-huh. yet they managed to make that something so simplistic but managed to make a, a lovable character out of it where it could have just been mishandled <clears> and, <throat> and like it, it's a joke but it still manages to work and I have to agree with you because I think that uh, Mandy that, Pankinen's uh, uh, is that who it is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. I think his He's character in some, something else that I saw that I liked. Anyway, alienation. You know how horrible I am with yeah, actors, names. but but the name sounds familiar, so must have done something else that I like. So he must actually be a good actor. Yeah, he actually he felt a personal connection to the character Inigo Montoya. Apparently, um, he was quoted in saying that the moment I read the script, I loved every part of Inigo Montoya. Uh, it was the character that just spoke to me profoundly. He said he had lost his own father, um, and his father died at 53 years old from pancreatic cancer in 1972. And he says, I didn't think about it consciously, but I think that there was a part of me that thought, if I ever get um, that man in black, my father will come back. So I talked to my dad all the time during filming, and it was very healing for me. So huh. it's kind of an interesting yeah, thing. Yeah, it's just like it's, it's very simple, but there's still some – they put some depth into the character that way. And, and if I think about it, that's what first comes to my mind about the movie mm-hmm. is, is And one of my favorite lines between – one of my favorite scenes in, I think, all of cinema was between Inigo and Wesley – when they're having their that, fencing that match. That duel on the, so on yeah, the, on the cliff edge, that's un- my favorite. Unbelievable. I mean, there's yeah. some very cheesy things, like when they jump and there's the, the clearly, um, they put a little moss around this, uh, this <laughs> spring. Uh, yeah, but the, uh, the, the pole between the two pillars. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so Inigo jumps off and kind of swings from it and lands. And then Wesley goes and he goes a double flip, <laughs> yeah. flip and then yeah. he does a backflip and lands. And, uh, and then this is one of, my, one of my favorite lines. He says, who are you? And then Wesley says, no one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. <laughs> yeah. It was so. It was so good, right? And then, yeah. and, and then just, and then as you discover this character, he he bests him in the duel mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. both are. Would be a shame. They both know something. Like, so I know something you do not oh, yeah. know. The left hand. Yeah, yeah. I am not left. I'm not left handed. <laughs> he switches back and then he goes back and he's like, he's like, oh, why, why are you doing? Like, I know something that you don't know. <laughs> Neither am I. Neither am I. Yeah, it yeah. Was, and it was so good. So, and then I think at the end too, he says. I would uh, I would soon uh, sooner destroy a stained glass window than an artist such as yourself. Yeah, yeah. And then he knocks him out, so right? Good. So you're learning that he's not like this vicious killer. Yeah. So it was a, mm-hmm. uh, a very uh, interesting. Yeah, they start out as enemies and then then some Become, sort of yeah. rivals and then friends. There's and that whole discussion they have even before the sword the fight it was really cool. He's talking about the history of his father and and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And it was just it was neat. Well, because they cut the rope and he's dangling there and there, he's got to climb up the cliffs the of honor. insanity, yeah. right? Yeah. Like and, and again, the one of the things I really like about this movie is for how much is put into the characters and the uh, the quotes and the the or the lines that the actors read mm-hmm. um, the the level of detail put into the actual um, the setting and the uh, the beasts is very like basic 
you know, like yeah. they have the shrieking eels and the rodents of unusual size. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, the, the it, it just wasn't a super creative, uh, you know, in terms of that fantasy. No, it was but that's, part of, that's why I said it was like satires making fun yeah. of that it, kind it, of thing. It's, it's humorous, but they're, they could do a better job, but they don't, and that adds to it. Like exactly, it, it made it better. Makes it better. Yes. So sometimes this is like maybe a common theme, but like some B type of movie, sometimes taking it down a notch and not taking yourself so seriously makes it whole. And I think that's part of what makes it hold up over the years. If you tried to do like the best cutting edge special effects, make the coolest creatures ever that were there, then it would be, be dated. Right. But this is, you already, you already make it cheesy and dated right, right. off the start. So you're like, okay. So you don't take offense to it. Cause you're not taking it that seriously. One that scene too, when they're going up the cliffs of insanity, where it's got Fessick and he's got all, all of them on him, yeah. right? And he's yeah. climbing up the rope. He's gaining on He's gaining his, he's like, well, he's not carrying three people yeah, or whatever. He's only got himself. Yeah, yeah. it's so good. Yeah. Uh, Andre the Giant. We, I mean, we got to talk Amazing about this guy. Amazing guy. So th- this was one of his kind of breakout roles. Uh, he was known for, uh, to be one of the greatest wrestlers uh, during the 1970s and 80s. Uh, he suffered from giantism, so he was well over seven feet tall, about 500 pounds, massive guy, like yeah. really big. When you see real pictures of him with other people, like you'd take his hand and put it over your face, it would disappear. Yeah. Makes yeah. big guys look small. So Andre the Giant, is he could really, really drink. So there yeah. are stories about him. And I've seen, there's actually, I think on Netflix, they have a um, documentary on him, oh. which is remarkable. So you, you should check it out. But so apparently... Um, three bottles of cognac and 12 bottles of wine reportedly made him just a little tipsy. Whoa. When the cast would go out for dinner, Andre, who, according to Robin Wright, ordered four appetizers and five entrees, he would drink um, out of a 40-ounce beer pitcher filled of a mixture of liquors, which is a concoction he used to call the American. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's interesting because, you know, being French, and I don't know how, how much time he spent in that culture and you know in that lifestyle right like i just wonder what his life was like as a as a youth right like growing up and being that way your whole life uh how much like how much money would that cost you to eat and just live you know yeah like, talk about saving money like well a story about him is he could he couldn't use uh standard um toilets wow so, so when he would go to the bathroom yeah. he would use the bathtub that's a real story no yeah he would. All the wrestlers would talk about it. Oh my god! Oh, that's, yeah, that's insane. DDP mentioning that. Yeah, so Jake Snake or one of them. Maybe. Yeah, and Andre, um, he had a very unconventional method of learning his lines. Right. Because um, that you know his accent was very thick. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was he was French and almost you know almost sounded like he kind of was almost deaf. Yes. You know, that yeah. It was very very difficult. Even when we're watching the film, he there's times that you're just like the Dwad Byron Waba. It's like when he's dressed up in the, <laughs> oh, the cloak yeah, right. there. Right? That's it really was good. Like, what is he talking about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So apparently Reiner, um, the director, and Goldman, who was the author, they met Andre and then. They they met him in a bar in Paris apparently, and they brought him up to the hotel room and they they did an audition with him and so he read a three page scene, and they could not understand a word he said yeah the entire thing, and so Reiner recalled he goes oh my god what am I going to do I mean he's perfect physically for the role mm-hmm. but I can't understand him so how are we going to get him to to get these lines down so what he did Rob Reiner ended up recording uh, his entire part on tape and exactly how he wanted Andre to recite it 
And so Andre would listen to the tape over and over again. And he, that's how he studied it. And then he got pretty good. And that's how he learned his lines hmm. uh, just by, you know, by hearing it. Yeah. yeah so very cool. And I, again, I like the interaction between um, the Andre and, uh, and, and Wesley's uh, the actor who played uh, Wesley, which mm-hmm. was Carrie. Uh, yeah. And, and when they were having their, when he first, you know, um, as he's walking up there and uh, they say, okay, well, you're going to fight him, you know, do it your way. And he's like, what's my way? He's like, hide behind that rock, you know, grab a rock, hide, hide behind <laughs> yeah. there. And when his head comes in view, hit it with the, the rock, rock, right? And he's like, my way is not very sportsmanlike. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, so he throws a rock and he misses him on purpose. And then he says, let's, uh, you know, fight each other as God intended is I think the, 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 yeah. the line there. And so, and then he's like, I think you have the slight advantage at a hand to hand combat. Um, but just again, kind of cool because not really jujitsu, but almost jujitsu because the choke was actually terrible. But again, yeah. he yeah, he but choked for, him for, out right. For the like, time, nobody knew chokes, right? So it was yeah. like yeah. But but again, I I also like that aspect too, how the smaller guy was able to take down the bigger guy um, in a hand to hand combat. So mm-hmm. that was there, cool. There's a thing about the Princess Bride I don't think gets talked about much, and it, this is a weird thing that I was thinking about. The actual film itself is. It breaks stereotypes, you know, because if you really look at Fessick, Big Giant's supposed to be stupid, actually very bright, very nice, you know, that type of thing. You look at um, uh, uh, Wallace uh, Shawn, who played the inconceivable uh, dude, <clears throat> uh, Vicini. Yep. I know he was supposed to be like super smart, but he actually wasn't that idiot. smart. Yeah, he was exactly. an idiot. And then you've got... Um, Maybe you just think he wasn't that smart. Right. And then you have Wesley, who, you know, he, he's the dread pirate Roberts, but he isn't. He's very nice. And then all, all well, these... He's, and he's a farm boy, right? And then you're like, right. oh, he's not the farm boy. He's this pirate. And, oh, yeah. he's not. And he's all about, he's just about love. And yeah. It's so a, there's all these role reversals that are happening within the movie and they aren't what they seem. And I think that's kind of, that's why it appeals to people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, hey, I'm a really big guy and everyone thinks that I'm just strong and big, but I'm actually a bright person. So yeah, there's more to people than you'd first see. Yeah. And I, I think that's why it kind of speaks to the geek culture as well. Because geeks are often looked at, it's like, oh, just we're going to pigeonhole them. This is what they're like. But clearly, you can be a geek and be a swashbuckler and that type of thing. So another cool. my another one of my favorite things about Fessick is his rhymes. Do you remember the scene? Yeah, and Nigo and him are on the boat, and uh, he <laughs> says um, that Vicini, he can fuss, and then Fessick says fuss, fuss. I think he likes to scream at us, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and it goes on. Probably he means no harm. He's really very short on charm. Yeah. You have a gift of rhyme. Yes, yes, some of the time. Enough of that. Uh, are there rocks ahead? If there are, we all be dead. <laughs> no more rhymes now, I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? It was yeah. so good. And with his accent and everything, that was I. That was the first time I really, like, when you guys are watching the movie, that, that was the really first funny moment, I think. For the me. peanut line? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it was so good. Um, so we were actually just talking about Wallace Shawn, who played the b- brilliant uh, Vicini in it, who was the mad Sicilian. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there is a very interesting thing about him. So he was apparently always on edge during ca- during filming because uh, he thought initially the rumor was that Danny DeVito was supposed to play that part. Oh, so he thought he did. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so the real actor, uh, Wallace Shawn, he actually has, uh, he has a history degree from Harvard 
and he studied philosophy and economics at Oxford. I mean, the dude is brilliant, right? Very, very smart. So in fact, uh, on the day of filming of The Princess Bride, Sean went to uh, Oxford University and he was giving a guest lecture on British and American literature. (laughs) Uh, but apparently when he was on set, he was inconsolably nervous the entire time because after learning uh, from his agent that originally uh, it was supposed to go to Danny DeVito, uh, Sean was racked with insecurity and he perpetually was convinced himself that he was going to be fired every single day that he was on set. So he just thought that, you know, Danny is like this huge, massive, yeah. you know, he was on taxi and everyone knew him. So, um, this that kind of thing, but it was funny because no one else could have played that role no. like he did. No. no, and maybe his nervousness actually helped the role. Absolutely, I think yeah. that kind of as he's because he's very erratic. Yeah, and uh, I I think his his laugh is probably the best thing. And uh, you know when he uh, comes across <laughs> right. Wesley and he's decided, okay, so obviously this guy is very uh, skilled and he's very strong, so I have to use my intelligence, my superior intelligence to 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 overcome this guy iocane powder yeah so but my my favorite (laughs) my favorite thing is so and that was another cool little trial that he had to overcome was how to outsmart him and when right the the i guess the um the duel that he came up with for them right was he was going to poison he's got two goblets he was going to poison one of them and then when he picked they would both drink from their goblets and the last man standing was the winner um Anyway, and and just the way the the, the whole scene unfolds and his rant yeah. that he goes on talking yeah. about, well, I can clearly not choose the glass in front of me, and then he goes back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. what is he even talking about? I, like, I remember just being so lost when I was watching that. Yeah. And then uh, after he takes a drink, but he pretends he pretends to see something, and then swaps the glasses on him, and they both drink from their goblets. And he says, you chose wrong. And then he says, ah, you only think I chose wrong. And you're like, oh, my God, like, what happened? Did he did he actually mess up here? Is this the real thing? <laughs> right. And my favorite line in that scene is, ha, you fool. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders, <laughs> the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> but only slightly less well known is this. Never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Then he's like, ha, 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 ha. And then he, like, dies, keels over right in the middle yeah. laughing there. It was so good. Yeah. Every time I hear that line about the landlock in Asia thing, it reminds me of Risk. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, Never it, get involved in a land war in Asia because you're just going to lose all of your shit. Like, yeah. It's, it's a so big good. continent. But Asia's worth so many points. Like, come on. It, it Everything is. you got to go for. <laughs> Jay, Jay, what was your um, kind of favorite scene? In I liked the, the, sword, the sword duel. It wasn't That good. was amazing. It was it like was. the sword play and the witchy repartee between the two of them and the sheer cheesiness like you said yeah. about the flipping over yeah. and stuff about them doing it plus that sense of honor like right at the point is you know letting him just from the point of, like letting him up the cliff okay well take a breather i don't want to you know you want to prove you're good and like, i'm gonna yeah wait get catch your breath i'm gonna fight you well well you're you're fresh i don't want to get you well you're all worn down mm-hmm. so and then just the sword stuff came across really well as a good sword fight and it was actually really good, wasn't it? Yeah. It was. It was, it was a really good sword yeah. fight. And yeah. then just the banter between the two of them. And then as they start out, like they start out friendly, but then they're fighting, but then they get to be more friendly as it goes. And then at the end, like you, you said, at the end of the fight, they're just such respect. It's like, boom, no, I'm just going to knock you out because yeah. I, can't, I can't bear to kill you because you're just too good. That, that sort of way of getting, the, what a great way to have a friendship develop between the two of them. And this is one of those kind of, this is where the writer comes in because apparently uh, Goldman who wrote it, he actually spent months researching 17th century sword fighting 
uh, at Manuals to craft the fight between Wesley and Inigo. Right. And, which comes across. Like you it's can an see epic that, sort right? of fight scene. Like we had the thing in um, They Live with the knockdown drag out alley brawl. Right. right? <laughs> but this is a more refined version of this with and, a more elegant weapon. And it was so interesting how in this movie where a lot of the scenes may have been cheesy or the fight scenes may not have been very well choreographed, the sword play was fantastic. Do you know why? Well, they both studied, right? Yeah, so apparently, um, you know, so Goldman, obviously he did all this research on characters and um, he, he specifically was trying to find moves and styles uh, and everything apparently was completely accurate. They're talking about, oh, you're using this Capavera, defense. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. This is all real uh, fencing stuff. So apparently both uh, Wesley and Inigo, uh, the actors, I should say, they neither of them had much of any fencing experience at all. So they spent more, um, spent many months actually perfecting it and training for it. You know, uh, they also trained right and left handed, which is remarkably difficult, right? Like if you've ever, if you tried to write with a pencil with your other offhand, it's like, it looks like chicken scratch. So. Uh, it's it's yeah. huge. Like, I, I I took I took fencing, and it was partly because of this movie. My dad uh-huh. got me involved when I was younger. Nothing. I think it was only a couple months, but I did it at the Y. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was really entertaining. But it's kind of like jujitsu, right? Where you have a, a left and a right side, right? And <clears throat> it can be slightly more difficult. But but, but it, no, it's it's really different with weapons when you use the wrong side, like. Just the other week when I was doing something, I was like, dude, on the other side, I'm like, damn, I'm like several levels lower with yeah, my you're, left, you're lower, my left doesn't hand. Mean yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 for sure. And that and that's what I think is uh, that was the whole point of them both fighting each other with their left hands, right? And then taking that up a notch. So they they also admitted to that, which was cool. Yeah, which I never really thought about before. And apparently, Mandy Pankin, he said he knew the knew his job was to become the world's greatest sword fighter. Uh, and so he trained about two months in New York before going uh, and filming. And then when he came to London, uh, him and he said him and Carrie uh, trained every day together that they weren't shooting. They did that for four months. There were no stuntmen involved in any of the sword fights that you see, uh, except for one flip in the air. And even after months of preparation and uh, stuff like that, the fencing instructors came in into the set. Uh, there were just a few free minutes. They kind of looked and they're like, wow, these guys are actually pretty like, good. And so, that's really good. Like, I think yeah. that's really sometimes I'm hard on actors, but like that's good acting when you go in and try to get those kind of skills like that. Like, that's the kind of thing people should win acting awards mm-hmm. for that you're really putting your effort into becoming like that character and learning new skills. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's huge. Like there's so many celebrity people that are they're just, they're famous and they make movies that are good and entertaining but they're not good actors and they don't go this extra mile mm-hmm. to be able to and apparently like that, that fight scene was actually left uh to the very end because they want to get as much practice yeah. in as possible well, so which i think shows so that's that was my favorite favorite scene i think that mm-hmm. one makes the makes the movie for me do you remember when uh they were walking in and uh, the princess gets sucked into the lightning s- sand lightning sand yeah yeah so that was, I always kind of wondered how that went down. Remember when he dives head first into it? Yep. And With a shitty vine attached to himself? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So that uh, apparently the actor himself, he did it. There was yeah. no stunt person. Right. Right. And so, uh, so appar- apparently, so this is what it says about the uh, lightning sand and the quicksand. It says, uh, that particular fire swamp stunt was accomplished by having a trap door underneath a layer of sand below which there was some foam padding for the actors to fall into. Now, originally, the direction called for Wesley to jump in feet first after Buttercup. But uh, Wesley, or Carrie, um, 
argued that this wasn't particularly heroic. So he switched it up uh, on the direction day. And although the director said this is a risky move, he said, I want to dive in head first. Now, the problem is if the trap door didn't open (laughs) at the exact time, he risked banging his head or even breaking his neck. So after the stunt double successfully executed the dive once, uh, Kerry did did it himself. Uh, He tried it and they nailed it perfectly on the first take. Wow. Nice. Interesting. But wasn't there also something... Oh, wait. This was a different movie where someone... Was that this one when he knocked him out? Did he actually knocked him out? Yeah. Is that a different? No, thing that it I'm was this about? one. So okay. when he meets, when he gets captured by the six fingered man at the end, once they make it through the fire swamp. Yes, he's standing there, and basically he gets hit on the head with the hilt of the sword. Yeah. And they were talking before. It's like, oh, just give me a little hit on the head because it won't look good on film. So he actually gave him a bump on the head, and it knocked him out. And so what you actually see in the film is is Wesley being knocked out for real. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was a real, and he woke up in hospital too. Wow. Yeah. He was out cold for like a long time. So I want to talk a bit about the, the fire swamp too. Another one of those places, another one of those things where the name is like, really like what? Like the fire swamp? Like it's it's silly. Yeah. Um, but the, the three terrors of the fire swamp, do you remember what they are? The rodents of unusual size. Yeah. The, uh, lightning sand. Yeah. And, and then the fire, the flame spouts. Yeah. 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 And so, um, when they first come across it, when Buttercup says to him, we'll never survive. And then Wesley says, nonsense. You're only saying that because no one ever has. <laughs> I thought that was a great line too. Yeah. Um, and then how they sort of, through each one, they, 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 the fire spouts, they make a sort of a, a little jet. I don't know what that sound actually was, but it's like a, poof, poof, like yeah. a little quick pop pop beforehand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they, they figure out that they don't step into the, the lightning sand and that, that'll solve that. And then uh, she's sitting there and she says, we're never going to survive. And he says, nonsense. You know, we figured it out. We've, we've seen these. And he says, what about the RUSs? And he says, rodents of unusual size. No, they don't exist. And, and it's standing right behind him. Jumps, yeah. jumps right on <laughs> right. him and it's fighting him. And that, that was a really cheesy scene. I remember thinking that when I was a kid too, like they mm-hmm. really, the budget for those rats was yeah. like not but very high. That's what I was saying before. If they made the rats super high budget, they would look worse today. True. Because you just know that they're supposed to be bad and cheesy, right. yet that it still works. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, segue into Dane's dungeon here and it's only going to be cool shit. And this is going to kind of go off the beaten track because... Um, I'm going to tell you something I do while I work. I have a friend of uh, mine that I work with and uh, Gord. And when we're working, we often talk about, Hey, you know, we're going to, any call we go to, we're going to be dropping movie references. And so I will often go to a call. Uh, it's not inappropriate, but I will use a line from a movie and it's especially funny. Uh, obviously context is always here, right? It's like, you're not doing a really serious call, but if Gord is there as well, and I'll be like, someone be like, da 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 da, and they're telling me that, I'm like, mm, inconceivable. <laughs> right. And so what happens is we have to figure out, you know, what movie is it from? Yeah. Or we will go to a call and we'll have to decide what movie we're going to pull from. Yeah. And so I, I get to, I oh, get you to get choose. one movie for the whole call? Yes, but I get to pick. So I'll, I'll look at you and I'm, I'll be like, okay, Jason, we're going to be at a call. And okay, what movie? And then I get to pick the movie for you that oh. I know that obviously you know about, but I get to pick it. And you have to come up with a line. That's my uh, that's my Dane's cool shit moment. That's awesome. So we've talked about obviously uh, some of the characters already. We've talked about Wesley. We've talked about um, uh, Fessick, which was the giant. We've talked about Inigo Montoya, which was the swordsman. We talked about um, 
uh, Vicini, which was the genius. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we have to obviously talk about the Princess Bride herself. Yes. Right. So Buttercup. Buttercup. Um, Just a neat, I've never used this word in a podcast, but juxtaposition. Yeah. (laughs) You know, having her, having her in there. So uh, I, I don't even know actually what other movies that she was in. Robin uh, Wright. Um, that's her name right yeah yeah um yeah i i the character i thought she was it's old school princess right for sure it's very like damsel in distress yeah you know um she does she she does a fantastic job of it and what i what i do like about it is how uh initially to the interaction with wesley and her because she doesn't know that it's him uh when she uh, gets rescued by him because he's the man in the mask at that mm-hmm. point and he is poking and prodding her uh, trying to uh get her to admit or to, to to talk about how she is in love with this prince and how humperdink yeah humperdink which humperdink. is a hilarious name um <laughs> and she keeps saying like you would never understand i've loved more deeply than this and you know she doesn't actually love this prince because she loved wesley mm-hmm. who she thought was killed when he went away uh, to go find make his fortune across the seas, and he got attacked by the Dread Pirate Roberts, who leaves no survivors. Mm-hmm. So that was a really interesting uh, setup where he was being like a hurt jerk because the woman that he was in love with, he thought that she had moved on. Right. Yeah. But she hadn't, and then she ends up actually hitting him down a hill. Um, <laughs> and then as he's falling, which is the a really funny scene oh, in the right. movie too, yeah. where they're tumbling down this hill, and he's like. Yeah, as you wish, and then, and then she's like Wesley, and then she just dives off this thing, and she's so like, good. "Ow, ow, ow, oof, yeah. ow, oof, ow." Yeah, it was really good. Can you imagine being the stunt person for that? No, that would suck. I mean, that was a crazy fall. That was like, what was it? Like a probably at least like a seventy degree incline. I think they changed it at the end. Like at the end, it very slopes off, and that might have been the real actors there. Yeah. But uh, initially, it's like that uh, was nuts. See, this is why you need to take Ukemi. That's Ukemi, what you yeah. learn, right? Yeah. You need to take like judo or aikido so yeah. you learn how to fall. Because <laughs> those were some they did some rules in there. For sure. Yeah, really, really good. Uh so Buttercup, yep, she was she was great. And uh Humperdinck was uh, awesome as well because he was such a little weaselly dummy. And I love how he everybody stroked his ego and he was the finest hunter in all the land and he could track a falcon on a cloudy day and <laughs> as he's as he's he's chasing them as the wesley is like slowly fighting each of the the gang members who stole buttercup right and he's describing what was happening and uh you know and then you know obviously you find out very quickly on that it was his plan to have buttercup captured and killed so that he could start a war um, and it's interesting because when you look at the sort of the history there, his father was a very just king. And then this guy was obviously a very spoiled brat who um, is just looking for power and trying to start a war with the Gilder, another uh, mm-hmm. country, I guess, and mm-hmm. trying to, you know, have the people rally behind him for that. So yeah. very interesting kind of political thing going on in the background. It doesn't really have anything really to do with the film. It just kind of uh, kicks off the whole um initial plot of the movie and then we're introduced to a character miracle max mm-hmm. which is played by billy crystal mm-hmm. uh billy crystal known as a as an amazing comedian things like that so he uh 
very funny because that's actually, you know, that kind of traditional comedy is in there because the other humor is, it's a little bit more subtle in some ways. And yeah. then you got, then you have Billy Crystal in there and, and then he's doing thing. Yeah. Carol yeah. Kane, who, uh, who was playing his wife. So the funny thing about that is there was a ton of moments that were not included in the film from Billy Crystal. Right. Cause he improvised a ton of shit and unfortunately yeah. it wasn't family friendly. Right. So apparently, so this is what it says. He says for three days straight for 10 hours a day, <laughs> Billy improvised 13th century period jokes and he never said the same thing twice. <laughs> And so, unfortunately for viewers, many of the improvised jokes were not fit and family friendly for the film. So only the cast and crew knew how funny the. Oh, so uh, there's not like extended DVD. I have not seen it, and I haven't seen the outtakes, but I have to search a little harder. So apparently, they were super funny and they were super crude. uh, And apparently, by judging from the fact that uh, Mandy Packin and he bruised his ribs from laughing so hard during really? that scene. Yeah. Wow. yeah. But again, this is these actors going the extra mile to not just, okay, memorize your lines and kind of just right. phone it in. But no, the, doing all that way above and beyond. Yeah, it's very good. And it was <clears throat> that scene when they're in Miracle Max's house. You know, and and they're you know covering the the pill with the chocolate makes it go down smoother and things yeah. like that. Well, so I, good. I like the whole scene when he gets there and he says, "We need a miracle," and he says, "I don't do that anymore." And the, yeah. the Humperdinks fired fired me, and uh, and then lost uh, his confidence. Yeah, lost his confidence, and then uh, he says, "Okay, well, why does he want to live so badly?" And I guess he's he's only mostly dead, so he's not he's not he's not <laughs> dead. He's only mostly dead, so we can work with that. And uh, he. Uh, takes a bellows and pumps yeah. him up and then says, why do you want to live so bad? And then he pushes on his chest and he says, true love. And then he says, to he, blame. he said to blame, which means to, to bluff. You, you owe money. It was a card game, right? And then his <laughs> wife comes out and kicks his ass and he, uh, he ends up doing it. So liar, was, yeah, liar, liar. He said true love. Yeah. Yeah. That was so good. Apparently Billy, um, Crystal and Carol Kane, they uh, came over to the director's apartment and they actually, made a whole backstory created the yeah okay, created yeah, a backstory of their right. their marriage right mm-hmm. before the film and this is kind of cool like you know they really kind of invested and yeah. they're basically this is this is how long we've been married and that type of thing and you can just kind of see how it kind of plays out because their relationship kind of was it was neat that way it's funny because they're like a team but she also is like resentful because he's in this massive slump and she she wants him to get through it but she's <laughs> they're kind of angry at each other because he's in this different space right so mm-hmm. it was a really interesting dynamic i think and so here's the thing that i you probably both can agree upon talking about a backstory and this is a geek thing especially with role-playing or D. Mm-hmm. if you want your character to actually embody what you're trying to do and i think most role players do that they actually think they make a backstory you think you know hours on end it's like where do they come from why is their personality the way they are Mm -hmm. you need a backstory but it makes everything better if you're playing a board game Mm -hmm. you gotta play your nation if you're gonna do thing and take this over even if you're doing risk you're like okay well what am i and then you come up with a cool thing like even the most simple things you can add more to it's what you put into it so yeah backstories make everything better they do and if you think of any movies or again any game like you said that are really good there is a backstory yeah magic the gathering actually has backstory oh yeah it's insane there's a whole there's books and the whole but people don't realize that they just think it's a, there actually is like you know about some of the stuff right yeah 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 it's uh yeah it's 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 and it's what i think what makes it better whether it's a, a video game or anything like that you can have action explosions you can kind of 
gloss over that and compensate. Mm -hmm. But what you lose is you lose a truly engaging because we're all people with our own backstory. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we're either watching a film or partaking in a, in a, in a, uh, a board game or video game, whatever it is, it's entertainment. And Mm -hmm. throughout our lives, what 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 really what really matters is, is an experience and you're going to get more out of that experience the more details there are and you're going to be able to relate to a character better the more details that that character has right and i think that's what's even though you just saw miracle max and his wife for whatever that 5 6 minute uh-huh. scene was the fact that those characters if you watch it and you and you go back and watch it now after hearing us talk about it you can see how those two characters interacting because they've had that backstory adds more to it they're not just saying those words right. yeah. there's an actual uh, sort of uh, repartee or a connection between the two of those characters because they've established this backstory. Yeah, uh-huh. you can feel it even if you can't see everything. There's all that unseen stuff that's before and after and like hidden roots, whatever. The characters just feel more real even if you can't see all the extra work that they did. Yeah, exactly. And I think that a lot of uh, I think again the we're gonna we we don't we do we're not sponsored by Dungeons and Dragons, but um, <laughs> I think that uh, the the fantastic thing about Dungeons and Dragons is it really teaches you the importance of that level of storytelling yeah because depending on how you're playing i mean there's tons of like figures and you know there's almost a DD now where you don't even have to really do any role playing it could just be a board game but um that is the to me the true essence of what the game is and what separates it from anything else right uh it's not just a board game it's not just reading a book it's kind of it's a mix of storytelling and engaging and talking with people and mm-hmm. uh you know certain especially i think i like it when uh dungeon masters kind of reward the <laughs> characters for their role-playing abilities totally. not, not did you make the decision that you you know alex Ari, or jason would make did you make the decision yeah, you, you that do sir, your character your character yeah. yeah exactly and are you able to stay in that role and be that character throughout the decisions and another thing that's kind mm. of fun too is you can open your mind up to solve problems in different ways when you pretend to be someone else yeah you open your mind up but also close your mind off too sometimes part of role playing is going in and going okay i'm good at this kind of thing i do this and like no shut this part of my mind off be someone else be act different aspects of yourself that maybe don't yeah like there's there's a problem Mm -hmm. and you would solve it you know by avoiding or not engaging but you're playing this angry barbarian it's like okay well now i gotta think differently and you know yeah. be and, more of a jerk and i guess that's one of the wonderful things about when you play role-playing games is because you're able to be things that you are not in the real world but your imagination can take you anywhere and it's right. not just an escape like a lot of people would say that's an escape like oh because a lot of people would stereotype and say like of course the little nerd thinks he's like a knight or whatever but sometimes you can you, you can flip that i've been into sports i'm a bigger guy i play i've played you know smaller roguish characters and solve my problems in different ways right you can Mm -hmm. you can do it however you want to do it it's not always just oh i want to be better than i am i don't want to be stuck in my mom's basement so i pretend to be the wizard saving the princess yeah that's not that's not that's just one stereotype (laughs) of it and there's nothing wrong with that it's just it allows you to open your own mind up and to you can take that and put it into real world situations and I would argue that it isn't actually being different than what you are. It's actually aspects of your character yes. that are buried that may be very minuscule, but they're a part of us. But you yeah. can exercise those unused personality muscles or exactly. whatever creativity things. And, and it's the same with what makes good for good role playing is also what actors do. They just get paid a fuck ton more money yeah. for mm. doing it than 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 uh, D&D geeks do. But it's the same thing. What makes good actors are people to put that extra bit into their character, not just, oh, I'm 
Joe the Barbarian with no personality. They actually put something into it. And that's what makes good actors better than just average ones. So that extra work that all these people are putting into, whether it's the extra sword fighting, the extra jokes, the right. history research, whatever it is. And I mean, this comes back to the whole backstory that we're talking about. Um, I did a lot of, the majority of my D&D career and role-playing career was actually being a dungeon master, a game master. That mm-hmm. was, I really love that stuff. Right. Um, I love playing as well, but I would say 80% of my experience was me running campaigns. Mm-hmm. And the amount of energy that you would put into thinking about, you know, so you have non-player characters, right? You have the NPCs. Yep. yep. PCs only have to worry about PCs. Yeah. Yeah. As a game. It's a much more limited experience when you're the player as opposed to when you're the dungeon master because the dungeon master has to create a scenario and be flexible enough to receive <laughs> yes the input of the players while also creating this not necessarily it's it's it is a linear storyline like you have a kind of a start and an end but uh-huh. then the characters kind of fill in how you get there and what happens and uh-huh. that's the amazing thing because role-playing itself when you look at it it's not just abc because players will shape a story that the dungeon master won't even think about yeah. and it is glorious yeah and it's like i think i'm gonna i'm gonna put them down this path and all of a sudden something happens something else different happens so it's like it takes amazing it, it's in levels like we've been talking princess bride here with you get the different levels where you think one thing's happening but it's actually something else and it, there's layers to all this stuff so you have like regular books and movies that have a linear plot that goes a certain way and it mm-hmm. only does does that one thing but then you had to choose your own adventures where you had like different paths that you could take and you could come up with i don't know would be like a hundred different ways a story could play out or a dozen right but then real role-playing games it's infinite of what could happen i think it's i think it depends on the the dungeon master too right i mean and i think that's where you get more experience as you or depending on what the people are because i've played campaigns with people who are sort of fixed in their vision yes and then yeah. you end up playing a more linear storyline yeah it's but it's like it's the way that the whole game, group right? interacts it's yes. mainly the dungeon master but also each different group of players will have a different group dynamic and what i also like is even if you have that backstory and all that stuff you don't have to it's not like a tolkien novel where you know i love <laughs> lord of the rings but like man like he really talks and defines like every aspect you know when you when you're introduced to the hobbit hole it's like oh it's not a dank dark it's just like here's 50 billion descriptors of what this hole is and you're like that's a lot of information and you know like it's good to form a picture but sometimes like you can overdo it so i think the princess bride does a fantastic thing of presenting things in a simple basic way that Uh have more if you want to look deeper there's there's a simple thing that gets you there and you can carry that along but then you can look deeper and it's like yeah there's more there and you can even the stuff that you can't fine you just feel that there's more there it feels yeah, like better. like inigo is a great character without you know remembering that he is all about vengeance and his father was a swords uh smith uh-huh. who got killed by the six-fingered man because he wouldn't pay you know like yeah. it's this whole revenge but it thing. starts out as a very simple thing yes. and then you're like okay i get this guy and you can start out with that simple thing okay good and then as you're going with that then you get to get more layers to it as you as you go but the character it's like yeah an, an, an interesting improv quote that i like to use is um, you know, when they're giving improv ideas, when you're throwing things out, there are good ideas and there's bad ideas. And just like there are good transformers and bad transformers. Uh-huh. So there are the Autobots, which are pretty simple. They're cars, trucks, <laughs> yeah, you know, ground vehicles. Exactly. They're, they're pretty basic things. And then there's the Decepticons, Decepticons, which are like helicopters and jet fighters and guns and all kinds of weird shit. And they're the bad guys because it's 
sometimes it can get too complicated or too out there with your idea. So I think what The Princess Bride does a really good job of is it takes these basic ideas like the princess, the prince, the hero, and then puts an yeah, interesting you take the stereotype, but you still do something. Exactly. And that's like, it's the most simple D&D campaign right there. Mm-hmm. However, within that story, there's these little these little twists because you can tell that story a million times and it has yeah. for hundreds of years. Save the princess, la la la. Yeah, but There's again, it's like variation. the fairy tale thing. The fairy tales, myths, are variations of the same story. Right. And uh, I, I just want to segue into a character who is hilarious, and I think everybody who has seen the movie will be able to know based off of what I'm going to say. But uh, just a very simple concept that just was presented in a hilarious way and that was the uh the clergyman who uh married uh oh, yes. buttercup yeah. and humperdink and he's like marriage that was very uh like uh monty python with yes the, uh, yeah that was the Pe- roman yeah Pe- peter cook who uh who <laughs> so did that and, and i remember seeing that i was like is this this that was another point where i was like is this is this movie real like what's happening here like what's <laughs> like awesome. is this such a weird joke it was funny. Uh, so here, I'm going to throw out uh, some characters, and I want you to tell me what class they are in D&D, D&D realm. Okay. You ready? Yep. Okay, so let's start with um, the giant Fessick. What is he? Alex, if you were to classify him. Barbarian. Jason. With the barbarian, but I don't think he even really needs a class, right? He can just, well... Sorry, we're sticking to D and D. Then he'd be, then he'd be yeah. just, a yeah. he'd be just a fighter. Then sorry, I'm too many role playing games, and I want to go off that, that. Save that for another thing. Just give him just straight up fighter, but he didn't didn't bother with a bunch of fancy weapons. No, okay, uh, okay. So because he gets a strength, he how else is he going to get the eighteen double zero? True or more. Well, barbarian, and and that's the thing is, some, and a barbarian, depending on how you level it or how you, uh, you know, what you roll for your stats. It is eighty seven. It okay. might redefine what your how you play that character like sometimes you can start off with a class and then get certain items or certain uh go through certain experiences that then shape you to play differently just because you're a rogue you then may get something that makes you more of an offensive character you're not sneaking right. around so much or just because mm-hmm. you're a barbarian you make it something that you might want to sneak around with more or solve your problems with intellect you may not be as good at it but you that's sort of def- you don't have to get locked into your class just yep. because that uh-huh. is what your class okay is. so you think so alex you say barbarian you say yep. fighter yep Okay, so now let's go to Inigo Montoya. Jason, what do you think? What would he fall into? Subclass, duelist, mm-hmm. best of dragon. So some type of swash, swash swashbuckling, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Same thing, for sure. Then how about Wesley? What is he? What is his class? Oh. Is he multi-classed? I mean, it depends, too. Like, it depends on what version you're playing, but, like, obviously pirate. But... I would think that he, I, I would think fighter primarily, and then he has, he's just very high level. He's very well trained. Like he's, <clears throat> he's the best. What level would he be? If you were to, if you were to throw a level, so he's fighter, what level? I don't know, like 20. He's like, what? He's no. insane. He's insane. He, he dies and like comes back. He's like, he's He's unconquerable. He's he's got true love on his side, man. But that's it. I would put him in like maybe maybe twelfth. Maybe. Oh, so here's an interesting thing too. Maybe perhaps because he does so much crazy magic shit, 
I would say potentially a, like a, a sorcerer or like a battle mage, and he's using love as his source of magic because he does some crazy shit, and and he's and he's using like true love as his excuse. This is how he conquers everything. This is how he gets through it all is because of true love. It's almost like this magic power he has is he's because he's lucky. loved so deeply that he is able to get away with all this stuff. That's an interesting. So he's really he's a superhero with love as his power. That's what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you think Wesley is? If you want to go with the fighter, then you could do an analysis. You'd have to look at the scenes and see how many how many people you can fight at a time. Because mm-hmm. first edition fighters, you can get that nice little thing where you get an attack attack per level. Okay, don't get too don't get too into it. <laughs> yeah, right. Just so, sorry, this is one of those holes that's not going to take me down. <laughs> uh, just, just go with yeah, you can go with the high level fighter. But I still think I I like the duelist class, okay. sub subclass first edition. Okay, Vicini. Oh, rogue! This is, this is sure. He's a rogue. He's a rogue. he's a, he's like a hired kind of. He's not a good rogue, but he, he <laughs> thinks he thinks he's he uses intelligence. He thinks he's smart. He thinks he's sneaky. Uh-huh. Uh, he has he makes plans to come <laughs> through things. It's um, he, he uses a, a small dagger. He doesn't confront people directly. He's trying to outsmart them or outthink them. Um, yeah. uses money to you know pay for the the hired goons to help him with his quest. Essentially, I'd say rogue for sure. Yeah, you you go with the thief there. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't really do anything super combative-y, but he's kind of got that. Yeah, sneaky. Yeah, think... and the good thing is like the you, your character isn't totally defined by your class either. Of course right? it isn't. Like, but it's the kind of thing you can fit in. You can go, yeah, you take this guy and go with it in whatever way. And like some of the guys don't even have to be a class. Like, I don't know, you could take him, and I would probably do him up as a sage, as a NPC, uh-huh. just straight dungeon master's guide, weird stuff like that with he thinks he's there rather than give him a regular character class yeah yeah they're kind of interesting so yeah i just i looked at that movie kind of as a dnd module yeah just a, a basic dnd module just with some interesting twists and every time i watch that film i enjoy watching that film yeah yes. like i hadn't actually watched the princess bride in, in probably a few years mm-hmm. but Anytime it's on TV, I'm like, I'm watching you it. Find a diff- you, you appreciate it, but you also find a different way to appreciate it each time. It's because it can stand the test of time. Yeah. The girlfriend and I watched it recently, and then she, she suggested it, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was, it's such a good movie that you, you know, it's not always, it's not like top on my list, but every time I watch it, I, it's, this is a fantastic movie. This was great. Has I, she seen I, it I before? Experience. Oh, yeah. She, she's a fan for sure. She's okay. seen it. Yeah. Um, remember when we were doing the podcast on movies they shouldn't make a remake of? She, she was the one who messaged in saying they should not Princess make a Bride. remake of Princess Bride, which yep. apparently there's some, mm-hmm. I don't know it's how credible it is, but there's some rumor that they're thinking yeah, of but, remaking yeah, it. Yeah, why would you remake it? I mean, it, if there's some movies that need to be remade, but these ones that you can watch again and again, and they stand the test of time. If it can stand the test of time, don't remake it. If it can't stand the test of time, do a remake. But the problem is, Jason, is who, the test of time, who's that up to? Well, you as an old school guy or someone new is like, oh, like yeah, think we've it, got we've got like here, a generation here. in between us of time. And if it can stand up for both of us, I'd say that's something. Yeah, maybe, but so maybe we get someone even younger in and see if it still works for them. I don't know. But like I'd say a, a weaker point in the movie that would not survive a remake would be the character Princess Buttercup because she's very um, old school princess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When, when that rat is attacking her, she picks up the stick and she like falls over. Like she, she's pretty helpless throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. She's not a very strong female character. Right. But as a comedy, you can kind of like 
it's I think it's great to have strong female characters, but as a comedy, just as, no, as, as I, a contrast yeah. to do something different, maybe it still holds up. I don't. I don't think. But if they went, I, I mean, if I'd they remake fearful, it, yeah, it'd be a kick-ass you know thing. But it's like that's done all the time now. Maybe it would be. I don't know. That's. I just don't think it needs to be remade. No, I and I agree with you there too. I, and mm-hmm. I think that they wouldn't be able to get the same feeling as well, especially um, no. you know when you're looking around the kids' room initially oh, yeah. right and the everything toys yeah and, and everything on yeah. the wall the posters the baseball the cars all that stuff uh and it, it's not a very like neat room there's kind of stuff all over the place he's got this shelf with like a bunch of toys and kleenexes and shit because he's been sick and he's yeah, just yeah. been like playing in his room kind of thing yeah. so that made it very real and that was always a really interesting thing while you're watching the movie too is that you're reminded that it's a grandpa telling his kid a story yes and it uh-huh. goes in from that narration and the voice is is amazing um, uh, the actor uh, Peter Falk, yeah, uh, who Colombo. played the the, gra- the grandfather, was yeah. th- that was so well cast, and <laughs> even uh, like Fred Savage, who's like a little asshole through the whole movie, <laughs> just like shut up, kid, like oh yeah. man. But uh, I I how they go back and forth, and how the because like I said, I was probably around the kid's age when I was watching it. Right. And so I was mm-hmm. going through a lot of the same thought processes like, oh man, is this going to be a kissing movie? Uh-huh. Like yeah, I was thinking the exact same stuff. So it was really funny to have a character, a kid analyze a movie exactly the way I've been analyzing all my other movies that I've been yeah. watching. Right? right. Like, oh no, is this going to be right. one of these princess And it's an interesting way of breaking the wall. Yes. Of the yes. thing, but yet not breaking the movie by breaking oh, the wall. Oh, I guess so, yeah. And I remember there was a, a scene where... Uh, the princess jumps out of the ship, tries to swim away from them, hmm. uh, and they're in the sh- the, the eel infested waters, right? Yeah. The shrieking yeah. eels, and the eel comes right up to her, and then he, and then it stops. the The movie just cuts and it goes back, and he's like, "The eel doesn't get her, you know." And I remember like thinking, like, I was like so wound up, and then he stops, and I was like, oh. "Like I was exactly where he was." You could see yeah. uh, the Fred Savage like cl- grabbing his blankets, yeah. right? And I was, I, I, I specifically remember watching that scene for the first time and getting really wound up by those eels, so. right? And so. When you watched it, you were later than that time, so it held up over the test of time. Oh, 100%. He was a kid from a later generation, still was yeah. there. If we could try this on a next generation after that right. and see if it still holds up, it would be interesting. There's a weird thing that happens when I watch movies like that, because Alex pointed out when he's in the room and you know he's got the, like, the toys and all these things. So this is a movie that's made in 1987, and I lived through 1987, but I'm I specifically look, I'm like, oh... Little Captain America. Oh, he's got yeah. a, a, a wrestling doll there. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's got uh, a refrigerator Perry um, and the uh, poster on his wall. Yeah, it's kind of fun. To... Uh, you know, a Ferrari picture. Yeah, all the typical stuff. And I love that because it's actually a peri- period piece, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's showing like that's what my kind of room would look like. And so when you have movies made now, yeah, it's like when Stranger based... Things. That's part of the fun is to go. Oh, wait a minute. There's this here. Were they were they true to it? Yeah. Yes. And some of them. Like some of the movies right now are hitting the nail on the head with that old yes. things, and especially '80s. I don't know what it is, but in the last few years, '80s is huge. Wonder Woman 1984 is coming out. Yeah, uh, and I watched the trailer for that. It looks fantastic. I've not seen that. We'll watch and, it after. Yeah. So the 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 this the soundtrack they use, uh, New Order, and so it, it's really really good. But I always love Wonder Woman. Yeah. Even like even the cheesy '70s one. It was like yeah, it was like so great, good. So yeah. Yeah, so The Princess Bride, uh, it did uh, hold up. And uh, a very funny thing about the end of that movie is they cut a scene out that they were supposed to have. So the um, alternate ending for that was eventually cut. So Fred Savage, who plays the reluctant 
or the child uh, in this film apparently goes to the window after his grandfather leaves and he sees Fessick, Indigo, Wesley, and Buttercup all on white horses. <laughs> that was the alternate ending for that. Interesting. But I think the ending is way better it's now. Better yes. without that. That I like was saying about breaking the wall. That that breaks <coughs> in a bad way. That this the way that they did it in their regular ending is that's fine. It, there's yeah. a, there's a thing between the the viewer and the film and mm-hmm. the kid and the book and the characters in there and there and that's the layers that it goes through. Just mm-hmm. like all the things about the layers you thought I think this. That, but the oh, whole the things. whole point of that story though is that when the grandfather's telling the kid and the reason why they set the kid up the way they set the kid up is it's how these stories affect people. So by telling a story that's filled with pain and struggle and a bunch of nonsense it kind of is instead of doing a more traditional fairy tale that you a disney fairy tale if you would uh Mm -hmm. kind of uh, whitewashing everything and telling oh everything will be fine and Mm -hmm. you know oh here's a little problem but then with a little bit of you know magic dust everything's all better now and you lived happily ever after so while this still had a happy ending it doesn't set it up in the traditional fairy tale way and the kid goes through these series of emotions and by the end of it he started out as a kid who didn't want anything to do with anything kind of kissy yeah but then near the end when he's just closed the book and said okay we're done he's like no i, I want to hear the rest i know i want to know right so yeah. he, it, it's about growing up it's about you know there's all kinds of experiences in life yeah, by and the end he appreciated a different kind of story than when he started and you can't just say well i only like this one thing or this that it, it's all part they're all connected and it's all part of life is it's got these multifaceted aspects and you can't just mm-hmm. walk out one part or another part right yeah so well the princess bride fantastic had some fantastic quotes which uh, alex went over uh, some today really good and uh i give it a you know thumbs up a great geek movie it has to be if you haven't seen it recently just throw it uh, on the tv and we'll watch it again even as a rewatch yeah it's, yeah it's so good six fingers up <laughs> <laughs> nice so that was the uh, episode 25 in the Princess Bride episode. And um, we appreciate you guys listening in. So, you know, we'll be bringing you more uh, geek trivia. We'll be talking about movies, role-playing games, and uh, some other kind of interesting geek and science fiction topics, uh, which are coming up down the road. Maybe even some stuff that's not fiction. Or is it? Oh, I don't know. Uh, alternate realities as well. So... Uh, So again, thank you. Episode 25 and The Princess Bride. So keep on geeking on.